day, right? Uh, I'm sure that everybody here has some uh, thoughts, some memories about their dad. Um, some really good memories and maybe some not so good memories. And uh, those of us who are fathers, we have some memories too about our kids, right? Some really good memories and some maybe not so good memories about our kids. And that's just kind of the nature of life. You might remember that um, Jesus told a story when he was here about a father who had two sons. Remember this story in Luke chapter 15? Pretty uh, familiar story. And it turns out that these two sons um, demonstrate the two basic ways all people try to live with their father in heaven. All people try to live with God. The first kid pretty much says, I'll take anything I can get from my father and then I don't want anything to do with them. Give me my inheritance, and I'm out of here. And so he goes off, and he lives his life independent of his father, taking everything he can get. And those kind of people usually end up in their life in trouble. And sure enough, this kid ends up in a lot of trouble. And if you know the story, you know he ends up as a Jewish person feeding pigs, which is about the lowest of the low that you can go. The other kid, however, tries to relate to God in the opposite way, and he tries to do everything right. And uh, when he just tries to serve the Father, he tries to follow the rules, he tries to do everything right, and he represents those people who take life seriously and really try to do the right thing. But at the end of the story, this kid ends up, like most people who try to live like that, very disappointed about the way life turns out. Very disappointed about the way God acts. And it's really weird because at the end of the story, it's the opposite of what everybody thinks. The kid who went off on left field ends up reconciled to the father, and he's receiving all kinds of blessings. You know, he gets the family coat, he gets the big expensive ring, he gets the big meal, and everybody's happy that he's home. And the kid who did everything right, he's so ticked off that the father operates on grace that he can't come to the party. And at the end of the story that Jesus tells, um, he's estranged. So... In Jesus' story, I think we learn a lesson that's very important and significant for uh, our time this morning. Neither kid loved their father for who he was. Neither kid loved their father for who he is, for who he was. And uh, both were selfishly trying to get certain things from the father, but neither of them wanted him. And in this story, of course, the father, as Jesus tells the story, represents God. And neither of these kids wanted to live a God-first life. Neither of these kids said, my father is so honorable that whatever he wants, that's what I want to do. That I recognize him for who he is. And so this father represents our heavenly father in Jesus' story. The story is called the prodigal son, but the truth is it's really about a father. And the word prodigal just means reckless, and it's really about a reckless father in heaven who is an extravagant giver to people who don't deserve it, which none of us do. And it's just interesting in that story that at the end of the story, the oldest son who does everything right resents that God operates on the basis of grace. 
And so I just want to say to you this morning, I really don't care whether you consider yourself a good kid or a bad kid. What really I'd like to impress upon you this morning is how extravagantly gracious your Heavenly Father really is. And if you've been tracking with us, you know we're in Romans chapter 8. I think it's on page 1119 in the Bibles there in the seats. And I invite you to uh, take your Bibles and follow along. Um, After eight chapters of studying Romans, uh, we come this morning uh, to a conclusion of sorts, kind of a a question that is a summary statement. And in uh, Romans chapter 8 and verse 31, the Apostle Paul writes these words. He says, what then shall we say in response to all of this that we've been studying. What do we say in response to the first eight chapters that God has revealed to us in the book of Romans? What's our response? How do we respond to these things? Uh, If we understand this um, great portion of Scripture, how does it affect us? What do you say in response? How do you respond with your life to this great passage of Scripture? And then several rhetorical questions are posited here in response. And they're just great questions. And the first one is the second half of this verse 31. This is just the greatest question in the world. If God, God now, is for you, who can be against you? That's just the greatest question. If God is for you, who could be against you? It makes me wonder how many people really believe God is for them. In my conversations with many people, many people believe God is against them. Many people believe God has ticked at them. God is out to get them. You know, God has abandoned them, forgotten about them. But this is just the greatest question. If God is for you, who can be against you? You know what the answer is? Nobody. (laughs) Nobody. Do you live like that? God is for me. Nobody can really be against me. What a great way to live. What should we say to all of these things that we've been studying in the first eight chapters of Romans? Who can override what God does? Who can nix what God has given us in Christ? Who can reverse God's thoughts toward us? Nobody. If God is for us. But I have to ask you, do you believe that God is for you. If you take away anything from the first eight chapters of the book of Romans, let it be this, that there is a Father in heaven who is for you and not against you. What shall we say to these things? The first thing we should say is, God is for me. God is for me. The best thing of all is the Father himself. In Jesus' story of these two kids and their father, they only wanted things from their father, but they didn't want God himself. And the best thing from God is God is trying to give us himself. To give us himself, to give us his heart. Uh, Your whole life is radically affected when you believe that God is actually for you. When you understand how much God is actually for you. And it's not just that the Father in heaven is kind of graciously disposed in your direction. No, remember verse 28? We know that in all things, God works in your life. God works. 
He's not just for you in kind of a general way, but he's at work on your behalf. He's interacting with the world. He's interacting in your life. And look at the argument that the Apostle Paul uses, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, do you think he's going to hold back some lesser thing? If God gave the greatest thing that he has in putting his son on the cross, do you think that this God is going to hold back some minor gift that would be for your good? It's the argument from the greater to the lesser. If you have a father who sacrifices for you, do you think he's going to then hold back some little petty thing that he thinks is good for you? Is there anything God would hold back on us? Is there anything too costly for our Father in heaven uh, to spend on us? Uh, second, uh, first Peter uh, asks kind of the same question. Uh, second Peter, I'm sorry. In Second Peter uh, chapter 1, uh, you, you know what God says? Let me read it for you, all right? Verse 3, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. And through these, he has given us these very great and precious promises so that through these promises, listen, you might participate in the divine nature. What does God want to give you the most? Himself. He wants to put his spirit inside of you. What does a human father want to give to his kids the most? I want to give you myself. What does our heavenly father says? I want to give you my nature. That you can participate with me in, in the same nature, in the divine nature. I want to give you myself. I want to give you my eternal life. I want to give you my spirit. I want to give you my outlook. I want to give you eternity. I want to have you with me forever. That's what the two kids in Jesus' story didn't get. They just wanted to get stuff, but they didn't want the father. They didn't want his nature to get ingrained in them. The one kid wanted to do his own thing, and the other kid wanted to earn his way with God so that God wouldn't have control over him. And those are the two basic ways that people try to relate to God. And so, what a great passage of Scripture this is. Um, when our focus is on Christ, whom God has already given, then you say to yourself, whatever God holds back, there must be a good reason for it. If God would sacrifice his son, if God is so for me that he would give the treasure of heaven, then things that I wish he would do that he doesn't do have to be somehow in my best interest because he's at work in all things. So the first rhetorical question, if God is for you, who could be against you? Nobody, right? Second question, uh, verse 33 in this uh, passage in Romans chapter 8. Uh, the second question is this, who can bring any charge... Against those whom God has chosen, it is God who justifies. Huh. Who can bring any charge against anybody? Uh, if God, our Father, is for us, and we know that God is the ultimate judge because he's the one who created us, he's the one to whom his whole creation is accountable, 
and he is the ultimate judge, no matter what charge somebody brings against us, it never sticks. Because he, God the judge, has justified, set free all of his kids. He, God the judge, has taken all the sins of all the world and put them on Jesus and paid the price. So you can know me and you can say, I have this against you, DeVries. I'm going to bring it up with God. You're not perfect. There's charges I could bring against you. I'm like, go ahead. In order for your charges to get to God, they have to go across the dead and now resurrected body of the judge, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you realize we have the Son of God as our lawyer? That's the next verse. Look at verse 34. Who is he that condemns? Who can condemn us? Nobody. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and he's the one who's our lawyer interceding for us. So you bring a charge, Jesus has already paid for that. Let him go. Who can bring a charge against those who are God's children? The answer is nobody. If God is for you and God has justified you through the blood of Christ, who can bring a charge against you? Now, you have lots of people who bring charges against you, right? You have lots of people who bring accusations. And it's not that the accusations aren't accurate or aren't true. It's just that they don't stick when it comes to God. Go ahead. Tell God on me. Go for it. We've got his son as our lawyer. And he, God, the judge, has justified his children. Who can bring a charge against us? And that's my whole defense. It's not that I'm perfect. That's not like I'm the older son in the story that Jesus told about the two sons of the father. It's not that I'm trying to do everything right. Because I can't do that. It's that whatever charges are brought against me have already been paid for. And that's my entire defense. Now, in the Bible, Satan himself is called the accuser of the brother. The accuser of the brother. And so he loves to do this. In fact, you might remember in the book of Job, which many people think is the oldest book in the Bible, Satan even accuses God. He goes after God and he says, listen, the only reason this guy Job believes in you and worships you and honors you and lives his life the way he does is because you have built a hedge around his life. You've made him cushy. You've given him wealth and you've given him kids and family and you've given him all the blessings in the world. But, Satan says, you take that away and that guy will curse you to your face. He only does it to get things from you, is what Satan was implying. Same story as Jesus' story about the father and the two kids. So God says, go ahead, have at it. And if you know the story of Job, Job, you know, Satan comes down, his kids are killed, his wealth is taken, uh, eventually his health goes and everything. And his wife is there like, you know, why don't you curse God and die? And Job says, look, should we accept good from God and not trouble? Can't we trust God in the bad times? If God is for us, who can really be against us? Even though all this garbage is coming from the accuser, Satan himself is trying to destroy our lives, I will not recant. Who have I in heaven but you? It's a great story. And Job's friends come along, you know, and they try to convince him, oh, you must have done something wrong. God would never allow this if you didn't deserve it and all of this kind of stuff. And no, it's got nothing to do with it. James chapter 4 talks about the fact that God is our judge. And so I say to you, you know, don't ever let the accuser use your mouth. One of the things that uh, 
sets us back as Christians is when these charges are brought against us, accusations are made against us, whether they're true or false. And we allow them to take precedence over the justification that we were given in Christ. Who can bring a charge against us? Uh, Jesus died and paid the penalty for that charge. He rose to assure us that God accepted his sacrifice. The resurrection is the guarantee of his acceptance. And third, even now, Jesus is there at the right hand of the Father as our lawyer. That when these charges come, he's defending us. And then finally, he's interceding for us. He is representing us before God. And so go ahead and bring up my past. Go ahead and bring up other people's pasts. But the charges will not stick. Who can bring a charge against me? Nobody can make it stick. I love this uh, uh, passage in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6. You might remember this passage. It's just a tremendous passage about this reality. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul writes to this church and he says, Look, don't be deceived, okay? Don't be deceived. Don't let anybody fool you about this. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But, he says, you were washed. You were dirty, but you were washed. He says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the very spirit of the living God. You were dirty, but you were washed and made clean. Don't be deceived. Nobody can bring a charge against those whom God justifies. Third rhetorical question. If God is for us, who can be against us? Nobody. If if somebody brings a charge against us, We've already been justified, you know. Next uh, rhetorical question found in verse 35. Who can separate us from the love of Christ, from the love of God that's in Christ? Who could ever separate? How secure, how much assurance do we have that this privileged status of being a son or a daughter of the living God, how secure is it? How uh, confident can we be in it? Uh, Who can separate us from the Father's love for us? That's a great question. Um, I talked with somebody this week, and um, she grew up in a home with an alcoholic father. Has a very hard time believing that God, her Father in heaven, actually loves her. Because she was separated from her biological father's love by his selfishness. It's very difficult to try and convince somebody who's had that experience that there's a father in heaven who's way better than that and whose love will be consistent in spite of what you do. Who can separate us from this great unconditional love that God has for us in Christ? Now, it's true that you and I are holding on to God by faith and our faith wavers from time to time. But God is holding on to us by love, and his love never wavers. He who did not spare his own son, do you think there's going to be something that comes up that will cause him to change his mind? And so he holds on to us 
by his love. All kinds of things come against us in life because Satan, the Bible says, is the small g God of this world. And so in this passage of scripture, Paul lists seven different experiences in life, all of which Paul himself personally experienced. And uh, you just read through this. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble? Hardship? Persecution? Famine? Nakedness? Danger? Sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul quotes from the Old Testament to say, look, this is nothing new. This has been going on since the beginning of time. God's people have trouble in this world. Why? Well, because the small g God of this world is Satan. And he loves to bring trouble to try to undo us and to separate us from the love of God. And so in verse 35, trouble, you know, who can separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble. Anybody have any trouble in life? I think most of us understand that, you know, there's always plenty of trouble. Wouldn't you say? There's plenty of trouble in life. You know what the word means? Trouble, it means being squeezed. It means being squeezed, literally. It means being under pressure. There's economic downturns, there's wars, there's epidemics, there's storms, there's calamities. There's trouble. There's always trouble. There's always trouble. Hardship, Paul says. Uh, the meaning of that word is distress. Distress. Uh, anguish of diseases, accidents, losses. You know, life is full of losses. I often think about Job, right? It's pretty dramatic because all the losses in Job's life come on the same day. I mean, he loses everything. Well, his health is a little bit later, but everything comes at once. But the story of Job is the story of all of us. We are all going to lose in this life. You've probably already lost some dreams. Maybe you've lost your parents. You lose loved ones. Uh, pretty soon you're going to lose your health. Eventually we lose our life. I mean, life is this life is full of losses, which is why our Heavenly Father came and said, I want to give you my life, eternal life. I want you to be a partaker of my nature. I live above the troubles and the hardships. I enter into them, but they don't control me. They don't determine my destiny. I want you to share in my nature. Take what I want to give you. Uh, trouble, hardship, persecution. I think persecution, you know, comes from other people pretty much. A, a lot of times for our faith. One of the passages of scripture that's kind of worn out in uh, some of my Bibles, I go back to this often in, uh, in Psalm 55, uh, the psalmist write this. He says, you know, my heart is in anguish within me. Fear and trembling have beset me. Horror has overwhelmed me. Oh, that I had the wings of a dove and I could just fly away to Maine and hide behind a tree, he says. I'd flee far away and stay in the desert. What's the problem here, Mr. Psalmist? Listen to this. If my enemy were insulting me, I, I could endure that. I get that. Uh, if a foe were rising himself against me, I could hide from him. But it's you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship as we walked the throng in the house of God. It's you, it's killing me. I go to some people who are going through a divorce and I say, oh, and they say, oh yeah, that's what it is. I gave my life for this guy, this woman, and now they're walking out on me. Maybe you've had this persecution that comes from taking a stand for your faith and, and you've lost your friends. Maybe you've lost your kids. Whatever. And it's painful. It's tough. And Paul says, does that separate you from the love of God? 
It could be anything from, you know, verbal wounds to bodily harm. You remember Jesus says, blessed are you when you're persecuted. Your reward in heaven will be great. So trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, shortages, nakedness, the idea of being vulnerable, destitute, alone, a loss of dignity, danger. When you're a believer, the world can be a pretty dangerous place. You know, our missionaries had their uh, closest friend and colleague assassinated a few weeks ago. Danger. The sword, violence. We lament these things. You know, in this uh, Romans chapter 8, you remember, the Bible says the whole world groans and we groan along with it and the Spirit of God himself groans about these kinds of things. There's a place called heaven where this is never going to be. That's why God says, hey, become partakers of my nature. I'm going to make you a promise that there's going to be a day in which you're going to be alive in a new body with, a, with the Spirit of God and with the company of God's family and be around his table forever in a place called heaven. And none of this stuff will be there. It's the way we want life to be. It's the way God intended life to be when he first created it. And it's always uh, been this way. Uh, as I said, Paul quotes uh, Psalm 44 to kind of say, look, don't be surprised when things turn out this way. Uh, don't, uh, don't be like the two kids in Jesus' story who just want benefits from their father, but don't want to enter into the heart of the father in what he's doing in the world today and the promises that he makes about the future. Don't be like that. Embrace the father. Embrace your father in heaven. Think of the history of the Jewish people in the world. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11 lists these indignities that the people of God uh, suffered and then says, you know, the world was not worthy of these people. To identify with God can be costly. Uh, Luke chapter 14, Jesus talks about, you know, uh, just uh, sacrifices that uh, oftentimes have to be made for our identity with God. But I want you to note something. Um, the next verse in, verse, uh, in chapter 8 of Romans, verse 37, uh, says this. He says, um, no, uh, in all of these things, we are super conquerors. We are more than conquerors. We overwhelmingly conquer. Now, if you have a Bible, underline the word in. Notice what it says. In all of these things, in the danger, in the persecution, in the trouble, in the hardship, in all of these things, we come out with flying colors because we belong to the family of God. In all these things. I don't know how many Christians miss that little word in. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors. How do we do that? Through him who loved us. Through Christ. Through his spirit being in us. Through his promises being real to us. Through the reality of hope, which grabs a hold of the future that God has promised. In the midst of all that we're going through. In all of these things, we come out with room to spare. And ask yourself, you know, is that true of you? If God is for you, who could be against you? Who could ever separate you from the love of God? If trouble comes into your life and it separates you from the love of God, you have reason to stop and ask yourself, how strong is my faith? In fact, James, in James chapter 1, you know what he says? He says, count it all joy when you get these troubles because they're opportunities for you to know the condition of your faith on which your whole eternity is based. So James, I mean, I never got that when I was a kid. James would say, you know, count it all joy when trouble comes into your life. I'm like, ha, ha, that must be a misprint. 
But now that I'm a little older, I look back, I say, you know what? It's through those troubled times that define whether we're really believers or not. In fact, Paul says the same thing here in... Um, uh, Paul says the same thing in chapter 5, right, of um, Romans. He says in verse 3 of Romans chapter 5, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Why would we do that? Why would we be happy about our sufferings, right? We rejoice in our sufferings because here's what we know. Suffering produces perseverance. We really have to define whether we believe that God is at work in all things in our life. Do we believe it or not? Do we believe that God is for us or not? And so he says, you know, we rejoice in our suffering. Why? Well, because suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance turns into character, and character turns into hope, and hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by his spirit whom he has given to us. Oh, that's the way life is supposed to work. I thought when I became a Christian, I could be like the two sons that Jesus mentioned about the father. That I could just get whatever I wanted and go live off my life. Or I could just, you know, be a really good person and then God would have to do what I want him to do. Because I deserve it and I've earned it. I did everything right. And now you're given to this, my brother who messed up everything and ruined the family name and blew the inheritance. Now you're going to keep loving him. I'm done with you. Great opportunity to examine your faith. Do I want the Father? Or I just want what I can get from him? So what does it look like when these uh, sufferings and troubles and hardships produce a maturity? What does that really look like? Well, the last couple of verses in our um, text this morning say this. Paul says, for I am convinced. Can I tell you what it looks like? It looks like being convinced. Not curious. Oh, I wonder, is God really on my side? Oh, I wonder, is God really for me? Oh, I wonder, you know, if God was for me, why he didn't do X, Y, and Z? No, I become convinced, Paul says, for I am convinced. And because I'm convinced, I'm committed. He says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life. I love it that he starts with death. If there's one thing that looks like it separates us from everything, it's death. And Paul says, I am convinced that death cannot separate me from the love of God. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? Because thou art with me. Thy rod and staff will comfort me when I get there. This same God who walked with me through my life, whom I've gotten to know as my shepherd, as my father in heaven, has promised to be there on the other side. And I take him at his word. And so Paul is like, I am totally convinced that death, and he says, neither death nor life. Now, to be honest with you, when I read this, I say to myself, you know, sometimes death looks a lot easier than the life that God calls us to live. Have you had times in your life where you say, I would welcome death over what God is asking me to do in life? And Paul, the Apostle Paul, you know, he experienced all kinds of trouble. If you go to uh, 2 Corinthians 11, there's a whole catalog of the things that happened to the Apostle Paul. He says, I'm convinced that life itself, now this is a great comfort, no matter what might happen to you in life in the future. In fact, he says, neither the present nor the future. No matter what might happen in your life, it's impossible for anything to separate you from the love of God that he has for you in Christ Jesus. If God is for you, is there anybody or anything that could ever separate you from the love that our Father in heaven 
has for us. When I posed this to somebody this week, they said, well, how about ourselves? Kids can be trying, huh? How about ourselves? Yeah, thank you. How about when we act up with our Heavenly Father? How about when we don't trust Him and we don't listen and we're selfish and we just want to get from Him and we don't want Him and we don't want to enter into what His plan is and His nature for our life and and all of that? Does that separate us from His love? No. Life can't separate us from His love. Just like a good father is going to keep loving his child no matter what, might have to come with some discipline, might not feel like love to the kid and all of that, and God does the same for us. He disciplines those whom He loves but it doesn't separate us from his love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, nothing from the spirit world can separate you, neither the present nor the future. You don't have to worry about the future. Don't worry about the future. Nor any power. There's no power greater than God's power. How secure are we in the love of God that's ours in Christ? So our Father in heaven is like the father in Jesus' story. His love makes him a recklessly extravagant spender, refusing to count sins against his children, especially demonstrated in the younger children. But neither of his sons trusted him. The one just wanted to do his own thing. The other wanted to take God's place himself. He wanted to be the judge of what God should be like, what his father should be like. He wanted to be uh, the one who would be his own savior and so forth. But can I suggest to you this morning in closing that the one who told the story is Jesus. And Jesus is the true son of our father in heaven. Jesus is the son who came into the world to do the will of of the Father. He came into the world to sacrifice his life so that you and I could enjoy the love that God has for each and every one of us. The Bible says, I, Jesus says, I, if I be lifted up on that cross, will draw all men to myself. Jesus is the true son of that Father. Uh, The one who told the story who trusted his father and surrendered his life in order to secure a place for us in the father's heart. The undeserved grace of God, the love of God. I hope you identify yourself this morning, not with the younger brother who just says, I want what I can get from God and I'm out of here. I don't want to listen to you. I hope you can identify not with the older brother in the story that Jesus told as somebody who says, look, I did everything right. I deserve better than the way my life is turning out. But I hope you identify with Jesus, the true son of the living God, who said, I am in the world to do the will of my father. And I am so secure in his love that even death itself, I can trust him with. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, it's too much when we read this passage of scripture. I love these rhetorical questions. If you, the God of the universe, the creator of mankind is for us, who could be against us? And obviously nobody. And you are for us. And you demonstrate it so clearly in sacrificing Jesus on the cross. May every person who leaves this room this morning be confident, be convinced, be committed to the fact that there's a God in heaven who loves us and who is for us. 
And who can bring a charge against us? Oh, we have such a checkered past. We have so many sins that we're aware of. We feel guilty about things that have happened in the past. Who can bring that? Satan is the one who brings those charges to discourage us. But you are the one who justifies. You are the one who appointed your son to be our lawyer, our intercessor. And no charges can ever be brought against us. And this last question, who could ever separate us from this tremendous love that you have for us in Christ? Nobody. Nothing in all of creation or in all of mankind could ever separate us. May we feel secure. May we feel confident. May we feel blessed to have a Father in heaven on this Father's Day. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. We're going to ask our ushers now if they would come and uh, wait on us.